Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If you're trying to be hurtful, you're doing a good job. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, yesterday I learned the origin of the term anal retentive. When you were a kid, did you have enough sense to disregard your own feces? You know, it's funny that you bring that up because the word, the term anal retentive kind of made its way into our cultural vernacular. But what's never talked about is the opposite, which is what I was. So anal retentive being... (laughs) withholding your feces, um, is a source of pleasure. And, um, I was of the other character type, anal expulsive. So like, I'm not a pack rat. I don't have that kind of nerve. I just throw everything away. At one time I even threw the deed of my house away. Marie Kondo kind of. Exactly. Exactly. Do you say thank you? <laughs> no, cause I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I did that once. I did it once and I liked it. I'm sure it works actually. <laughs> Those things generally work. So so the anal expulsive character, what are they like in real life? So it's it, it's like not 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 caring enough, not not holding not being serious enough, not caring enough, not. That yeah. explains your work on this podcast. <laughs> it's only it's only hidden by your shoddier work. <laughs> I, I think I was probably anal expulsive too. Now we're going to have to put all these Wikipedia links to anal shit. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all agree that, that, that everything comes down to butt stuff. <laughs> so today, in case you haven't figured it out, we are going to talk about Freud, Sigmund Freud and his last work, I believe, Civilization and Its Discontents. Yeah. Penultimate. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. He had, he had Moses and monotheism, which I don't know if it's worth talking about. <laughs> but that was <laughs> one day down the line. <laughs> yeah, when we run out of everything. Uh, we we need topics. And given that we need topics, we have topics. And what we're going to do in the opening segment is narrow down from just a bunch of suggestions on Patreon for our Patreon, our beloved Patreon so- listener selected episode. We got over 150 suggestions and we had to narrow it down to like five or six so that we can give those as the finalists to our beloved $5 and up subscribers. So we've each have chosen five or six of our favorites and hopefully there'll be some overlap. There usually is some overlap. 
So uh, yeah, I don't think it's it's ever. I was as I was picking, I was like, ooh, I wonder if I could selectively choose so that there wouldn't be overlap. But I'm sh- I'm sure I didn't. I mean, it would be bad because then we have to fight over every <laughs> single one. <laughs> but yes, I'm excited. This is great. A great crowdsource. We're still probably milking the first list. <laughs> yeah. As always, we will do more of these topics than even what makes it onto this list. All right. So what's your first one? Uh, my first one is do do something Lovecraft, HP Lovecraft. Mm. I've never really... I think I've read one of his stories, but it was motivated. This was from a suggestion from a Patreon, Matthias Hall Anderson. And um, I was especially motivated because I was talking to uh, my students in my lab the other day, and they were telling me about the new Jordan Peele project, which is based on a book that's based on Lovecraftian shit, like mingled with race shit. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, which also was, as I understand, H.P. Lovecraft mingled race with his shit or, or racism, <laughs> I guess. Is, is, that's what I've heard. I didn't know that, but then I'm glad he's being reclaimed as a champion social justice war. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think anybody thinks of him as that. Like uh, the, the, the thing I heard about him was even for his time, he was racist, but... I have never read any of his stories, and and they seem to have inspired a lot of the art that I currently yeah. love. So I would love to do. Yeah, this. I think it'd be worth it. Maybe, yeah, it'd be worth it. But like you, I've I've read, I've clearly read shit, including like comic books that are that are inspired by a Lovecraft world. Yeah, there's a podcast that I wanted to shout out because I listen to it every so often called Weird Studies. Uh, do you know this? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard of it. I've never listened to it, though. Uh, yeah, it's this guy, Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. They're very focused on the weird in all its various dimensions, but the they're extremely inspired by Lovecraft. And hearing them talk about it seems... it's a, It always it sparked my interest for a while. So, cool. I think this will probably make our list. Uh, I'll go a different tack for my first one. Uh, this is from username. Uh, have you guys ever considered talking about video games? Not sure if you play, but it would be awesome if you picked some choice and consequence game like Disco Elysium or A Wolf Among Us and compared what choices you guys made. Not to mention all the other real world topics surrounding gaming. Wow. I, I will admit that I didn't put any video game stuff on, on my list out of fear that it would be outright rejected. So there was another person that suggested a different game. So, like, I, I like the idea of playing, like, a choice and consequence game that we then can compare, like, how, how you know, oh, yeah. like, you know, I think that would be fun to, you know, our personalities would be reflected, I think, in the different choices. Uh, oh, yeah. Ethan Fisher also said, like, the the static speaks my name. It's a 15-minute long indie game where you play as a deranged man who's obsessed with a painting. I've never played anything like it, and I think it's perfect for this audience. So I, I think that would be kind of cool. I'm worried that it'll get me down a rabbit hole where I start playing video games again for real, and I don't want to do that. Eh, worth it. It's worth the risk. So we'll keep that on the... <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, yeah, Like I said, I, I didn't put video game stuff because I, I didn't think you'd be up for it, but I'm totally down for it. I contain multitudes. <laughs> so complex. Uh, <laughs> all right my next one is 
uh, something I guess we've touched upon but never really discussed, and that's just long-termism in its in its various forms. So I don't think we've dedicated a show to just this this philosophy called long-termism. So this was suggested by both Gray Meckling and I think Tom Marshbank, and they listed few, a few people who might talk about this, um, but including Parfit. I, I'm not that interested in it. Honestly, like I saw that one and I agree that it is a topic that others find interesting, but like the existential risk stuff, the, you know, I think we talked, we definitely talked about it a little bit with McCaskill and also Peter Singer. I find that stuff, it's so riddled with uncertainty that it's really hard to take a stand and it also as we've talked about like it often seems like it's an excuse to just devote resources to your pet cause so so tamler doesn't recycle and I, doesn't I, I, <laughs> I do recycle I, although i think as a separate issue that's <laughs> kind of worth it yeah no no i i uh i suspected that you might think that way i think we could eke out maybe an article that might be interesting but I concede. All right. Well, we'll see. So here's the Plasma Dan one. I know this is a repeat request, but I would love you guys to tackle E Unimus Plurum, um, and this essay on television by David Foster Wallace. I thought, I think that would be very cool to do that specific essay. I like that he gave us a specific essay to do. I, I looked at it. It looked interesting. Um, yep. That that plasma dance suggestion was on on my long list. The literal only reason it didn't make my short list was because I figured we would do another David Foster Wallace right. thing anyway. So I thought, but, well, but let's we, put something that has so less of a shot. This is a meta <laughs> thing, but I, I, there were some like that for me at first, and then I was like, but wait a minute, we say that, and then we don't yeah. actually end up doing it. No, that's true. You that's know? true. Like denial of death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We made a listener very upset with our constant flirting, uh, constant teasing with uh, doing denial of death. I, I, I'm, t- I'm, like I said, the David Foster Wallace would have been on my list. So, well, we'll put it to the side, and then we'll see if uh, if it makes it. The um, the one I was going to say is doing something like fear and trembling from Kierkegaard. I have that too. Yeah. So Travis Neal suggested that. I feel like uh, the. The, a theme has emerged in the in these last couple of episodes, and I, I feel like we'll we'll be putting a button on it with some Kierkegaard, and maybe even later with some Dostoevsky. Yes, <laughs> an announcement to come. I don't think we'll make it today, but there's an announcement concerning Dostoevsky to come. Um, I, in a related vein, I like the idea of Kierkegaard, but also Benjamin Miller said, "I'd love to hear." You explore a topic relating to theology and religion. H. Richard Nyboard's The Responsible Self comes to mind, or C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I, I've heard that those are really interesting texts, and I'd also be interested in that. I mean, I guess they're two separate topics, so maybe we could do Kierkegaard now and set the other one aside. I, I think both are really interesting ideas. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'll do my next one then. A bunch of people asked us to do more Borges stories, um, but a couple people suggested actual stories, one called The Immortal and one Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote, 
this is one of those where we're going to do more Borges, right? But like listeners could just make us do it right now, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's that's exactly why, like at first I didn't have him on the list, just like with uh, Dave Foster Wallace. Have you read Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote? No. So that was exactly the example I had in mind when I said that we could write uh, Denial of Death after reading these three people. I was thinking of of the, the, the guy. I don't know if I've read Immortal Man, but absolutely. There's just no, it, we should just put it on the list, even if, you know, if it's, even if we have to make the list six. And I feel like somehow Borges is a good summer episode. Uh, I don't know why. I've, like, I have good fond memories of doing them over the summer. Absolutely. And, and yes, I totally agree with you that giving a specific work, especially a short story, not like, like somebody suggested Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to talk about that, but to talk about it responsibly, I'd have to read 600 pages. And like, really, what am I going to read 600 pages? I've read a good, a lot of that book and I'm not interested really in talking about it beyond what I say about it in Why Honor Matters. <clears throat> All right. My next one is this book that that I uh, tried to mention last episode, maybe, and then forgot, but then remembered. Um, but I think that you would enjoy it. It's called The Myth of Mental Illness by t- a psychiatrist named Thomas Saz, S-C-A-S-C. Um, it was a book written, I think, in the 60s, but it's it's a super, super interesting take on what mental illness is with like a, a historical, in a historical context that sort of tells the history of the concept of mental illness and how it evolved and what it, what it's done to us now um, in our sort of view of, of what disease is and the, the metaphor of disease that's parted over to the mind. I, it, it would be fun to do. That was by Mark Kerr. Mark, are you related to Steve Kerr? And somebody else Dan- Danielle Cosme also suggested just talking about mental disorders, which we would talk about if we talked about the myth of mental illness, but maybe that's a, also a separate, separate yeah. topic. I don't know. Yeah. I would like to do that because there's also interesting meta, uh, psycho- meta psychology, meta philosophy kind of questions about it that I think we would. I, like we could do, we could probably get a clinical guest like, Matt again or somebody else to talk about the DSM-5 um, and how it was developed and like controversy surrounding it and all that stuff. Yeah, I think that it might even relate to some of the things we're going to talk about in the second segment. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that for some I'm not. I'm seeing it not on my list, which makes me worried that some of the ones that I liked didn't make my list somehow, but uh, I remember thinking that would be really good, so I'm happy to put that on. Okay. So Richard Arndofer would love to hear you talk about J.D. Salinger's short and wonderful book or story, Franny and Zooey. I remember really loving that story, but I was also in my, I think, early 20s, early to mid-20s when I read it. I'd I'd be very interested in revisiting it. Yeah, and Salinger in general. So I don't know. Did that not make yours? It didn't make mine, but I don't remember seeing it. So it was, I don't know if it was on the, there were two posts that we, so maybe it was on a different one. I've heard good things about it. I like, I, I mean, I, I'm always up for literature. So we'll see. We'll see if it, if it makes but it's final on the final board. Cut, but I think we yeah. should put it right now on the board. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've exhausted all of mine. There were a lot of Kafka suggestions, which I like. Speaking uh, of 
a good uh, evolution from Nietzsche to Freud to Borges and Kafka. Like, I, I think I, we don't have to put it on the list, but I think that they're right that we should do another Kafka episode soon. Yeah. Didn't we have Tolstoy on there at some point? When are we going to do? Death of Ivan Illich. Yeah, Ivan I would love to do that. Yeah. But I don't think anybody recommended it. Um, last one then for me is there were a couple film ones and I hope to get at least one of them on, uh, the movie primer, which, uh, is like a time travel mind fuck of the century. I think that one was from Jeremy Silver and then Stephen Cowpar. Oh, Stephen is a, a student here at Cornell who's in, in my lab, even though he's actually a uh, PhD in math. Oh, interesting. So you know him. Great guy. Well, Great maybe guy, he'll, yeah. uh, he asked, how about the seventh seal, the Bergman movie? Stephen coming with the fucking hoity-toity cinema <laughs> suggestions. Well, one of the things <laughs> yeah. that I thought was... Like, I'm probably not going to watch The Seventh Seal unless we do an episode on it. And then if, <laughs> if we did, I think I'd get a lot out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm not a huge Bergman fan, I'll admit. Like, I, not because I've seen them all and I don't like them. I've seen The Seventh Seal a while ago, but I don't remember much about it except the chess scene. But yeah. That's I, about all I know about it. That's like literally the only thing I know. <laughs> chess with death. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's a reason why people consider it great. And I think it's very philosophical or a primer. One of those. Primer, I didn't put on my list because of just how fucking complicated it is. I've, like, it's to the point of complication that, that I've never gotten the satisfaction. I think you have to watch it four or five times and then like read, chart. you know, like look at XKCD famously has sort of a diagram of like all of the, the time, you know, maybe in the summer, maybe it'd be a fun thing to do. I, people say that it's probably the best time travel movie. Yeah. And he made it for like $6,000 or some ridiculous. Yeah. That's great. I, I am, I want a movie on this list and I don't have one. So I'll let you, I'll let you decide. I'll go seventh seal. Because right. there's only, this is the only way we'll do that is if yeah, <laughs> listeners yeah. pick it. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. um, and I, I, I want an excuse. So, uh, all right. So what do we have? Let's go through them. So we have Seventh Seal. We have a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, two kind of like a bunch of options. So we'll just put video game as a topic. Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. Did we say yes for Lovecraft? I think so, yeah. Okay. It's Lovecraft, Kierkegaard, Seventh Seal, Video Game, and then The Myth of Mental Illness and David Foster Wallace. And more Borges. And more Borges. I'll go Borges over Foster Wallace, but I do want to do an episode on that that essay. Yeah. that's Is that six if we do? Borges, Seventh Seal, Mental Illness, Kierkegaard, Video game, Lovecraft. Yeah. Uh, Want to go with those? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the seventh seal is going to win, but <laughs> oh, I'd love it. Don't I've, say I've, that because <laughs> you'll get a mounting. <laughs> I'm happy to be surprised. No, I, 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 would, I would love it. Go for it. Uh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Stephen Cowper. 
Irish, fuck you. But, and I also <laughs> want to keep in mind, and the Benjamin Miller keep reminding me if we forget the like Nibor, or if that's how you're, or Niebuhr, yeah. uh, the responsible self, or this would be pretty cool. I, I can see myself being op- more open to that stuff than than I have been. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've read, I think, both of them, definitely Mere Christianity. Um, and I prefer Kierkegaard as my apologist. But the Niebuhr, I haven't read. I don't remember if I read. I, He's um, the one that I've heard good things about. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll be right back to talk about Sigmund Freud. Look, it's a pandemic. We're all struggling. We're all having trouble adjusting to lockdowns and social distancing and so much uncertainty about what's to come. Who knows what's going to happen? It's a lot to deal with. And BetterHelp is a valuable service in any time. And maybe especially at a time like this when our face-to-face contact is so limited. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It is professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Phone sessions. BetterHelp is available worldwide, so our international listeners can check this out, too. There's a broad range of expertise available. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping. If you have trouble sleeping, I know I have trouble sleeping. Anger, family conflicts, podcast co-host conflicts. I know I have that. Grief, loneliness, and a lot more. Anything you share is confidential, of course. These are professionals. And you should go and check out their testimonials, which are posted daily on their site. BetterHelp can help people lead a happier and healthier life. And as a VBW listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com VBW. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash V-B-W. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash V-B-W. This is available for our listeners worldwide. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show, as you might expect, where we like to reach out to our listeners and thank them for all of the support, all of the support you've given us as our listeners. We really, really appreciate it. Um, if you can't 
tell from the way in which we gushed with appreciation in the first segment for all of uh, all of the ideas that you give us, but also just for the communication, for the reaching out to us for whatever reason. If you want to reach out to us, you can always reach us over email at uh, verybadwizards at gmail.com, or you can tweet to us at verybadwizards or at Tamler or at Pease. You can join one of two or both communities where there might be lively discussion. We have still going the Facebook community and our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards, um, which has continued to grow and which I think always has good discussion if you want to get in long form discussion, especially with other listeners. And you can finally check us out on Instagram. By the way, uh, you tagged me on Instagram on the latest thing, and I got a ton of new followers. So I think it's just as a policy, you should tag me all the time. <laughs> I, was, I meant to thank you. <laughs> well, it was yeah. obvious. You were like Nietzsche, Ubermensch, you know. <laughs> it, was, it, it actually was an automatic suggestion from the Instagram algorithm. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows that's how you perceive yourself. So, <laughs> I actually, in my mirror, I just have like a blonde wig <laughs> that's like pasted onto where my head usually goes. Uh, no, but we really, we really uh, appreciate all of you reaching out to us. Like we always say, it's what keeps us going, especially in shitty times when we're stuck at home and have nothing better to do than to read you guys arguing on Reddit. I personally appreciate it. Yeah, thank that. you. I really love getting the emails and you know obviously I have a special place in my heart for the people who just write to thank us or tell them when they were listening to us at a special shout out to the authors I don't have their names in front of me of that sex robot evolutionary psychology paper that's that's awesome yeah (laughs) they reached out to us the uh the platonic love robot authors um after we talked about their paper in a first segment reached out to us to tell to tell us thanks they're super good sports about it they they reached out to uh tell us that they appreciated our discussing their fans um they are mads mads nordmo arnestad is uh yeah um so thanks thanks for being good sports and they showed no contrition no no, no. And as, they as they should <laughs> So, yeah, if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can do it in one of two ways. Um, You can go to the support page on our website and the links will be there. But um, you can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal or you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. Um, we are so grateful for all of our supporters and both for the financial support and also for episodes like these and others that you give us ideas. And that's another place where you can talk about episodes. Yeah. You can find the link there. You go to patreon.com slash very bad wizards and you can become a supporter at one of three levels. So, um, we love our supporters. Thank you so much. If you, can't at this time give us any financial support but would like to support us in another way you can always rate us on one of the podcast apps i think apple is the best one to rate us in terms of but also i think you know download us subscribe to us on spotify i think that helps too i don't know i I don't pretend to know (laughs) oh um really quickly we are going to when you if you hear this on the first day that that we release it 
um, tomorrow we should be appearing, <laughs> unless it goes terrible, <laughs> unless it goes terrible, we will be guest guesting on Yoel Imbar and Mickey Inslick's uh, uh, podcast, Two Psychologists, Four Beers. We're, we're going to be joining them um, to have a discussion about who knows, who knows, but uh, that should be fun. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. All right. So shall we move on? Yes. To our main, Let's get our to main, it. our main topic. I think both of us were excited about doing this. This week, we decided to focus on Freud's pro- probably his most famous uh, work, um, "Civilization and Its Discontents." Um, I just want to say a few things by way of introducing uh, the text, and the, the text sort of speaks for itself. So we'll get into the nitty gritty of the argument, but it sort of does assume a little bit of knowledge about Freud's psychoanalytic theory. Uh, So I thought I'd I'd talk a little bit about that, but also the historical context. So this book was written in 1929 and published in 1930. It was, uh, aside from Moses and monotheism, it was Freud's last book. Uh, I'd say his last book in, in a coherent state. <laughs> he was on his deathbed and was the, he died in 1939. And I think that he regarded this as, as sort of the culmination of a lifetime of thinking about these psychoanalytic concepts and applying them in an analysis of, of civilization just more broadly. But by no means is this the first time he, he tries to do this. Um, he, he has a, a number of other books before this where he's, he's applying his psychoanalytic concepts. I teach Freud in intro psych. And one of the things that I always try to make clear is that particular historical and autobiographical context. So Freud was living in Vienna, Austria at a time when it was just the Victorian era. People were extremely, extremely um, conservative, especially in all manner sexual, you could say, or to borrow from Freud, they were sexually repressed. Um, it was a very interesting time, probably quite unlike any other, definitely uh, um, different from today. And Freud was uh, a physiologist. He was an MD. He was a doctor. He was seeing patients who were coming in to, to report that they were suffering from physical maladies. And his practice grew into sort of talking therapy from uh, visit, visiting with a lot of these patients who were reporting physical problems that had no organic cause. So um, Freud was living in this stifled time. A lot of people attribute his willingness to say shit that nobody else would say to the fact that he was already probably an outcast in just, just because he was a Jew in that period in time, in that particular place in the world, that he was more bold. Like he, he just, clearly didn't give a fuck uh, about rocking the boat. And, um, he's pretty, you know, for whatever you think about Freud's ideas, I don't think that it would be ever fair to call him anything but brave in his willingness uh, to talk about stuff, especially stuff that nobody was talking about. His ideas though were weird. There's just a lot of, of what we would find to be strange, odd ideas. I'm going to give an example later on when it comes up, when we're talking uh, about the text itself. But Freud was fundamentally interested in the development of personality. He was a personality psychologist. He wanted to understand how the child went from, you know, this blabby, mucousy, poopy thing to having the personality of a full-grown adult. And in particular, how mental illness could arise as a product of development. So to his credit, he was one of the first people to point out that early development plays an important role in adult personality. People just thought of 
kids as like mini adults, kind of like that didn't really matter. You could ignore them for the first few years of their life. So he developed a theory. I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of the theory, but the theory basically said at its heart, the human organism and all organisms are pleasure seeking. And for Freud, this was the very first piece of your mind. The psyche um, was what he called the id, which is just the it, the thing, which was purely driven by a desire to seek pleasure. And over time, the source of pleasure changes. So at first, um, the infant primarily would seek pleasure from breastfeeding, what he called the oral stage of development. And then that moved to the anal stage of development when children were learning to, uh, when they were getting potty trained, when they were learning to control their, their bowels and being punished or rewarded if they did or didn't properly. Then it moved on to the phallic stage. By phallic here, he meant essentially when little kids start twiddling their dick in the bathtub. <laughs> like it, he didn't mean full on like, like adult sexuality. He meant like, so when you progress past the anal stage, you moved into what he called the phallic stage. And this is when you derive pleasure from twiddling your dick, not full blown adult sexual satisfaction, but just like that, that stage in life where kids are, are discovering that they can get pleasure from, from that part of their body. Just and twiddling then, it? Like not, it's just, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> it just moved, it just moved from once you resolve potty training um, you realize that bodily pleasure can be had. And so for Freud, this is an important point, I guess. For Freud, sexuality was really broad. So, so kids would start touching themselves in their genitals at this stage. Like he, he pointed out that kids actually derive pleasure from their genitals. They just didn't, it's not sexual in the sense that you and I have it, but for Freud, sexual meant broadly any source of pleasure. Um, and that's all before school age. So, so, so wait, so uh, yeah. the anal stage, you're what? Right around when you're potty training two, three years old. But um, what, what, why is it called like, just cause you're sh just because you're not fiddling with your ass. Uh, no, but he believed that pleasure was derived from the feeling of pooping and the feeling of having control over when you poop. When, when we say that somebody is fixated like orally or anally, we, what what Freud meant is that during that stage of development, something happened that didn't didn't uh, wasn't smooth. So people who constantly put shit in their mouth, we say they're they're fixated orally. For Freud, that just literally meant that during the stage of breastfeeding, you were somehow frustrated. You didn't get your needs your needs met. Um, Freud put a lot of a lot of stock in what happened in those first few years. Um, and because, because, uh, your id, the source of all your psychic energy, the source of all your, your whole mental energy, your life energy was the desire to seek out pleasure. Those are the, the sources with which you can get pleasure are the primary movers of development over time. So, uh, this is all before we get to full blown adult sexuality. So what Freud believed is that when you hit school age, all of a sudden, the child realizes sort of over time that they can't be pleasure-seeking machines. They have to play by some, some sort of rule. And they, um, they all of a sudden just repress all of this stuff and they go into latency, he called. So, so that's, you just, this is the stage at which kids think 
you know, boys are gross, girls are gross, you get cooties, you don't want to think about sex. To him, that was just all of a sudden your mind just shuts down all thought of, of pleasure and in sexual pleasure broadly defined. And then you hit puberty and you finally get to what he called mature genital sexuality. So for Freud, what happens in those, especially zero to three years of age, when you end up in, in the uh, phallic stage, that was really important. And we'll get back to what happens at the end of the phallic stage, which is the Oedipus complex. So Yeah, I have questions about that. Yeah. <laughs> so he and he thought, doesn't really, do, he just kind of assumes it in this, but he doesn't go into the whatever possible evidence there right. might be for it or it's it's no not at all and it's it's funny to think you know as i was reading it like of, of course freud by now like this is 1930 there were so many people who had drunk the kool-aid right like the whole world was really into the ideas of freud so much so that it was no longer is freud right it was what parts of freud are more right and what parts should we correct so, of course, he's writing this for an audience that is intimately familiar with all of these theories in a way that's it's a little jarring for us. Yeah. So the pleasure principle that is fundamentally the id, that, that thing that drives us all, um, Freud believed, got suppressed when kids had to understand that there is reality. Reality imposes constraints upon our happiness. We can't just go around sucking boobs and sticking our finger up our ass as much as we'd like to. Um, <laughs> there are constraints that are externally imposed. Like you just can't do that. Importantly, he thought that after some time, we internalize all those rules that we actually move from being reminded of the cold reality, what he called the reality principle. We could no longer act on our, our pleasure. We had to act on the constraints of reality. That's when our ego, our self uh, develops. And then a little bit later on, what we do is we internalize all those rules and we incorporate them into ourselves as the superego. And that becomes our conscience. Society's rules become, become our conscience. So wait, let me just back up a little bit. So the ego, as I understand, just from this text, mm -hmm. it is the thing that is, that divides you from the external world, which you don't even have as a, as when you're very young, it's like you have a more expansive view of the self when you're really young you don't have this sharp division between you and the external world. But then when you are developing that sense, you now start to have a, a sharper delineation between what's you and your feelings and your beliefs and your thoughts versus just the world. That's exactly right. It's the first boundary. It's the boundary that gets put between you and everything else. And that is obviously a sort it can be a source of frustration because, um, you are now you are seeking pleasure for you yourself you and that that means that you have to interact with other selves and you don't always get what you want and you yeah that's and that's what he called the the reality principle he had an interesting he had an interesting story for how we develop our moral sense this superego that he called it and the story some of you might be familiar with is the one of the edible conflict conflict. And so what he said essentially was, look, I, let's take the male child because it was developed for basically just for men. He had adapted for women. He said, basically, you're like, I like the pleasure that I derive from my mother. She fulfills all my needs. Um, I 
you know, I'm warm and I'm fed and taken care of. I got to suck on her titties. (laughs) I got to suck on her titties a lot. (laughs) And, um, and here's this man in the house who is imposing all these rules on me. Like, I can't do this. In fact, he wants the woman for himself. There's this jealousy. This is all, of course, unconscious for Freud. He doesn't believe anybody has a memory of this. And what happens is there becomes this frustration grows and this resentment where the child feels aggressive. The the boy feels aggressive toward his father and he wants to kill him. (laughs) Freud actually believed that one of the, the things that happens in this stage is that young boys realize that they can never defeat their father and therefore just join him right? They just give in and they incorporate their father into their own uh, self. So that's the superego. And he thought that one of the ways they did it is if they had little sisters, they would look at the little sister like in the bathtub and see that she didn't have a dick. I'm not making this up at all. (laughs) They would see she didn't have a dick and be like, holy shit, they're going to cut my dick off. And that fear of the fear of castration made them get in line real quick like that. She must have pissed off dad so much. He cut, he cut her dick off. <laughs> and this leads to people like sons really internalizing the, the norms of their father and trying to impress their father and trying to be a man and trying to exactly. like, this is where this is the origin of the source of that. Like a lot of Freud, like. The, the very specific details sound far-fetched, or at least I want to know just why he thinks that. But it, he, it feels like he's on to something, if not that. There is a—you've you've put your finger on this sentiment that I couldn't—I'm I'm torn because I read a lot of Freud—like, when I read Freud, there is so much that makes sense— but it's embedded in, like you say, these details that seem so weird and off to me that I'm like, wait— like it's this mix of, of wisdom and insight with like, oh, by the way, obviously like we're all bisexual, and, you know, like stuff like that. Like, it's like, wait, wait, what does it have to do with it? And we all want to sleep with our siblings and <laughs> exactly. And yeah. that's the first, like, that's one of the first also repressions that you have to do. Yeah. Right? The great it's disappointment. Like, yeah. That incest like, is, is not that what allowed. he calls it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like I, somewhere wrote wrote out that quote specifically because he's like he calls it like one of the earliest disappointments is that incest isn't right hey maybe that's why all that porn hub shit exists <laughs> maybe Freud really was honest um this is in in uh chapter four he says that incest is the drastic mutilation that man's erotic life has experienced through the ages um that the elimination of incest is the drastic mutilation. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's like, that sets us on a, like a trend. So Freud's theory of individual development of how we go from seeking out pleasure or happiness through these organic ways, like, you know, trying to, trying to please ourselves in the ways that our bodies feel pleasure, then get, gets frustrated And we, even when we develop normally, what we're developing is this sort of understanding that we will never be able to really satisfy our, all of our desires. That's, I think, a good starting point here where this is what Freud is 
I guess by way of analogy, but I'm not sure, right? But he's basically taking the tack that understanding that can help us understand how civilization developed historically. So if we understand, so it's a sort of um, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny argument where uh, just like individual development, society developed, civilization developed. And that's the source of much of our discontent. Just like problems in development are the source of our neurotic misery in individuals, um, the development of civilization has put us all into this state of, of perpetually unable to find the happiness that we so crave. I, I want to talk about the analogy between the individual development and the development of the civilization and like, cause he, he, he maps it pretty specifically. Like what's the super ego for civilization? What's the super ego for us? What's the ego for civilization? What's the id? So a couple of things about it. First, it comes right at the end. I was surprised by it. It's very reminiscent of Plato and Republic. You know, he has the same, similar kind of thing where he does this analysis of the tyrannical man and then the tyrannical city and the democratic man, the democratic city. Up till then, it is really like civilization isn't an analogy. It is just trying to figure out why there is this tension between individual happiness and the demands of civilization. And then, you know, you start the text. Well, actually, you start the text, which I want to ask you about the oceanic feeling and tying that to religion. Um, But it really... The, the idea as you're going into that last chapter is this is about why people are unhappy or dissatisfied and why, what role does society play in that? To what extent is it inevitable? When did we start to understand that civilization was a source of distress? Is there anything we can do about it? And then it just does this little twist at the end, which it's hard for me to tell to what extent that's necessary or plays into what comes before it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you because, you know, on the, on the one hand, I was, as I was reading, I was like, well, this is a different style book. Like it, we're trained now to sort of say what our main claim is. Like our central claim is this. And then we build the case for that central claim. And that gives the reader a sense of what you're doing the whole time. And this is a very different style. This is, I'm going to take you through this journey, almost a stream of thought, but more organized than that. And we're going to arrive at the place that I think is the deepest truth. Because throughout, he's sort of setting the stage, like you say, he starts off with this. Um, he says, you know, I got this buddy and this buddy says he read, he read my book and he's like, I, I think you're doing a disservice to a lot of why people are religious for me, it's this oceanic feeling. It's this feeling that I have of being part of something bigger, that I am uh, something limitless and unbounded, um, hence the term oceanic, a feeling of connection with eternity. And Freud says, eh, yeah, I believe that you feel it, but that can't be why. Like it can't, religion, like if anything, this is this has to be explained. We have to explain why you have this oceanic feeling to begin with, because as a good atheist and a good scientist, he thinks that can't be just because God gave it to us. So he embarks on this explanation, but then, as you say, in the last few chapters, introduces a whole new set of ideas and wraps everything up in a way that he, oh, he thinks he wrapped it up in a way that I don't think, I don't think he did. Um, Regarding the oceanic feeling, he seems 
to have respect for it, even though he says he doesn't feel it himself. So it is I like this that. kind of, yeah, yeah. I like that. It was nice. He, 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 he was no Chris Hitchens. <laughs> so my stab at what he's up to there is separating that kind of spiritual feeling, that feeling of transcendence from uh, religious and religious Christian ideas um, which he has, like Nietzsche, like just a ton of contempt for. And that that is that is a consistent theme throughout the text is that he finds Christianity uh, a special form of delusion and repression. And, and you know, it, it, it urges us to disvalue this world. It infantilizes you. And he, he has a lot, of, like this comes up a lot in the text, his contempt for the idea that you should love your fellow man. Yeah. He's like, all that does is just dilute what love means. And right. like a lot, your fellow men don't love you. They feel aggression towards you and you're supposed to love them. Like it, it's meaningless. It's just, uh, it's a bromide. And I, and I, and I thought maybe he wants to separate that stuff, a specific manifestation of the oceanic feeling from the oceanic feeling itself which like he has seems to have a lot more respect for and and leads off the book with yeah like all of the stuff that he talked about in in um uh, the future of an illusion which was kind of dissing the content of religion like in all the things he said he's like well there's this one piece that you know i think deserves some attention which is this oceanic feeling and i think for freud this is a detective you know this is the work of a detective he's saying this has to have a natural cause. It has to have its etiology in some sort of psychoanalytic development in the way that he describes. And so I think that he's, he's clearly undermining it as a source of, of, of religion, but he's, I think, explaining it as a psychologist in a way that he finds satisfying. And, and that isn't like a pathology or an illness or something or just a dilute, like the feeling itself is real. And, um, even if it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. So then it goes into this diagnosis of, we have this pleasure, this drive, like our id is these drives, like the pleasure principle, but then also an instinct for aggression, which he doesn't totally, I guess, separate from the pleasure principle, but, but it, but it, it manifests itself in different ways. Like it, the pleasure principle can lead you to erotic love and sexual gratification or it can uh it can also be uh, manifest itself right as an as an aggression i guess the fundamental tension is like this is just inevitable you have a, a society and they are imposing constraints on you getting pleasure or satisfying your the 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 id your drives and so it becomes really difficult to negotiate that terrain he, he says like maybe if you're an artist you're less dependent on others for your happiness if you derive satisfaction from your work in that way that can maybe do it for but it's very few people that can live that life and for most of us our happiness and our gratification is going to depend on other people and the outer world in ways that we can't control and that will frustrate us. That's right. The, the fleetingness of the pleasure that we get, even, even when we're doing our best, 
I think is part of the problem. For instance, we, you know, mature adults get a lot of pleasure from sex. And so what we do is we, in, we do things like get married in, in an attempt to, um, have like a constant source of, which anybody who's married will laugh at. <laughs> oh, I get to fuck whenever I want. <laughs> uh, but, but that's just like, that's just not how happiness works. Right. So, um, so we are, we are misery for, for Freud, you know, talking about the aggressive, the, the aggressive drive or the death drive, which he brings up later on, that was a late addition to his theory for, for most of his life, he was arguing that all drives, all motivations are from the id, the fountain of, of sexual energy that it is from the id. That was the heart. That was the libido. The libido was the, the source of, of all that carnal desire. And we try, we try to, to make it by, by creating these, these institutions like marriage where we'll get, get, get it on the regular. But, there's one thing, you know, much like Buddhists, he starts off with saying like, look, all of the suffering that we're experiencing though is inevitable. Like even in the best of conditions, we're going to have a bunch of suffering. And, um, there's, as you were pointing to, there's a few ways out of it. One is to drink your, you know, or take drugs to pacify this suffering. <laughs> the other one is, uh, to do something like sublimated into art. The other one is to seek out the, through meditation or what he calls yoga the dissolution of the ego, because then, then you're eliminating the source of suffering. He thinks all of these are lacking though. Like all of these are just going to be patchwork because for him, there's a big trade-off that is to be made. And this is the source of suffering. That is the big trade-off is we have create, we have to regulate the way other people get happiness. If we are to get a shot at happiness, like if we're going to live in a society and get a shot at happiness, we have to agree to these certain rules. And I think what he's saying is that the, the rules of civilization in his, especially in his screed against Christianity, are oppressive. Like they've gotten oppressive. He plays, he's on the border of trying to just make descriptive claims. Like this is the source of human misery. And making some sort of like normative claims about how we should. Did, did, I, did you ever get the sense that he's actively saying we shouldn't have civilization or we should go back? He's no, I, I don't know if he thinks that's possible. I, I think he has like the normative elements of this. He has a lot of hostility towards overly repressive forms of society, like the Christian uh, society of his time. But he's not like a noble savage. Um, I think he, he finds that naive as well because... That there's there's no security, right? Right. Like he has a, a nice quote. It's about the battle between liberty, individual liberty and happiness and the needs for a social organization. He says, the liberty of the individual is not a benefit of culture. It was greatest before any culture, though indeed it had little value at that time because the individual was hardly in a position to defend it. And so you have this need for security and like the, the world is going to come get you some way like the world isn't going to organize itself so that it can just gratify your needs if you just didn't have civilization it's just inevitable that we have to have some sort of social organization he thinks and i think he's probably right about that and so then the question is well how do you do that now you say that the aggression 
comes late. And I knew that about the death instinct came late, but the aggression plays a big role. It seems like in this text, right? Like he talks about, we can have love for people uh, as long as it's a constrained group and we can have aggression towards. So it's almost like a balance. Like we need aggression towards an out group if we're going to love people in our in group. And this aggression also plays a role in like, it's, it's, it's like the formation of our guilt, right? Like we have this aggression towards the external world, towards other people that we then have to, society makes us repress that. And so we turn it on ourselves and that's the origin of guilt. This, this feeling that punishes us even when we don't act upon our uh, naughty impulses, but just that we have, just that we are conscious of having those impulses at all. I don't know, sleeping with your sister or, or your mother or killing your father. Or, um, so now your aggression instinct, which can't manifest itself externally, you, you, you now turn it on yourself and you start to feel guilty for things that not even that you've done, which he thinks is fine, but that you haven't done, but just thought of, which is just part of who you are and part of your development as a human being. Right. Much like the superego or the moral conscience develops through the internalizing of the father's rules. So he says, he says a few times, guilt takes on two forms. One is the guilt that comes from, yeah, you know, something's wrong and you're worried that you're going to get caught and you might get caught and, and you feel bad in that sense. But it's when you internalize it that you start to feel that second kind of guilt. And he thinks that what, especially religion, just sort of in, as an institution has been writ large that same thing you've internalized the rules of, of civilization so that you feel guilty and he has a it's a great little part there where he says you know the it's the people who are the the most saintly that seem to feel the most guilt uh, over everything they do because of course they have the most active superego right they they when you're that sensitive to right and wrong a lot of what you do might might seem to be wrong which seems right to me, right? Like I couldn't help but think of Augustine uh, and his pears. And then he has that great Mark Twain footnote. <laughs> yeah. What is that? The first, he's, he, he talks about, he was, he was watching Mark Twain and uh, this is awesome. Like someone should write a story. It's so about awesome, this, right? <laughs> if, if they haven't already, like a play or something. In a delicious little story, he said, the first melon I ever stole. The melon, as it happened, was unripe. I heard Mark Twain tell the story himself in one of his lectures. After he'd given out the title, he stopped and asked himself in a doubtful way, was it the first? <laughs> that was the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> yeah. So, but I guess my point is, is that the aggression seems to play in this, in this text a big part in our dissatisfaction and our unhappiness. It's this, I guess, the way it manifests itself, you know, through the superego, we turn the aggression that we can't, That's right. that we want to, that we're dri driven to impose on others towards ourselves. And that leads to neuroses and various forms of That's right. pathologies. That's right. And, and um, you could also have a view, which I think he used to have, that aggression is the result of, for instance, like the side effect of trying to satisfy, um, you know, I want to fuck your wife. Right. You know, you might beat me because that's the source of your pleasure. Um, it's later on when he posits that it is its own drive, 
like yes. the the to drive essentially the Thanatos, the drive to death, that yes. it gets a bit more controversial, and that does seem to come a little bit out of the blue. I, but I find it really interesting that so just to in case we're not being clear because we're jumping around, but the the aggression, I agree, it is the frustration from not being able to gratify your instincts, like not getting like just non-gratification of powerful instinctual urgencies, he says. And that leads to aggression. But this destruction instinct, he he introduces at the end, he says, I can no longer understand how we could have overlooked the universality of non-erotic aggression and destruction and could have omitted uh, to give it its due significance in our interpretation of life. So this destructive trend is directed inward. Uh, It usually eludes our perceptions, but it's this instinct for, like, it's like you want to fuck up your life. If your life is going well, you still want to fuck it up. Like, I I don't know to what extent this is, well, to what extent any of this has empirical basis in the, but I mean, this is, such a big thing in art, right? In like notes from underground, like, like that's nothing if not a self-destructive instinct that makes him act the way he does, especially in the second part of Dostoevsky. This was a big thing in that Alex Garland movie, Annihilation, where everybody in their own way is trying to destroy themselves. And so you have to do battle with that aspect of you. There's a, like, that's another tension, right? You're not even mad that you can't have something or you can't have sex with somebody. It's that you just want to i don't know fuck shit up fuck fuck shit up you want there's two things you want to fuck and you want to fuck shit up right (laughs) and i don't know there's something that strikes me as true we're not good at like just being happy and letting that letting that last you know yeah so we want (sighs) to destabilize things well so this is the story of why we are seeking pleasure seems fairly obvious straightforward right like this it would be hard to disagree with the claim that one of the things we want to do is satisfy our needs and and the pleasure is good and it feels good it's the the death is a drive or destruction of a drive that's non-instrumental does seem a little weird to me but freud seemed to think that one that the death drive thanatos was so sort of a when you're just dealing with life and pleasure, you're constantly in this sort of like satisfy it, be unhappy, satisfy it, be unhappy. And that the death drive was this sort of desire for there just to be stasis for like all living things to just finally end in a non living state because yeah, it's draining. It's draining to have this drive. That's constantly, constantly you're either seeking pleasure or frustrated from having pleasure. Yeah, it's different, but it's, that is different than what then I get the intergroup relation stuff. Like I get the frustration and aggression. Yeah, but and I guess the way I understood it as just reading it here was that even when, you know, like these other forces aren't making you unhappy, there's this thing to reckon with too. If it wasn't bad enough, the fact that civilization and your individual instinctual urges are at odds then there's this <laughs> then there's this other thing and it seems to have some sort of connection with our the superego and guilt but then also just has a life of its own right I, I 
I don't think that it's it's um, weird for us to be a bit confused here. I think that the understanding of what Freud meant is up for grabs a little bit. He himself in the book says that, well, I know this is contested by, again, you know, this huge community of psychoanalysts who had already adopted his ideas was like, well, then when Freud brought up a new idea, they were already the establishment. They're like, no, no, even Freud, you're wrong. Early Freud was right. And he says, that's how I felt. Yeah, like that's how I felt when I first heard about this, you know, like, but it's a good rhetorical technique. No, I get why you're objecting. I was like you too. I was once you know? like you. All right, well, let's, let's set that aside for now, but because I want to like get your, get, I want to get your just general sense of to what extent do you think he's, he's brought a lot of insight to the human mind and the human condition. And one of the things I sort of like about it is he's not offering some sort of major general solution to this problem. Right. In fact, I think he thinks that there is no, he's very clear, explicit, that there's no general solution. It always depends on the individual. Finding a balance will be different for every person. And there's no like formula that will, that will work for, for everybody. But then he also has a kind of fatalism or tragic sensibility about the, you know, the competition between, civilization and need satisfaction. It's very possible. I think here's a quote. We shall accustom ourselves eventually, hopefully to the idea that there are certain difficulties inherent in the very nature of culture, which will not yield to any efforts of reform. Like this isn't something that we can fix. We can make it better maybe, or at least not make it worse, like with certain forms of overly repressive uh, forms of society, but like, this is something that is going to be a, a deep tension within us that will be an obstacle to individual happiness. And it's just life. It's tragedy. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I like that. He doesn't try to solve this all like, right. He, he says, you know, I don't know. Communists think that the root of all this is, is human desire for personal property, the, you know, the introduction of personal property private property. That's not it. Cause we're going to be miserable either way. Right. Like he's like, I don't think we were less miserable before, you know, Freud has sort of this, he's offsided quote where he says that the goal of psychoanalysis is to turn, um, hysterical neurosis into common unhappiness. And I, <laughs> that's the sort of mix of his optimism and pessimism right there. He's like, look, I think we could do better I think that the internalization of these strict rules about the body, about pleasure, are creating neurosis. And he has an interesting part here about whether or not we can call this culture neurosis. But that we're creating the conditions for making people especially unhappy the way that we're doing it now. It really does feel more like diagnosis in a way that he's like, well, you know we'll see we'll see what happens he's not really giving advice because there's always a trade-off so we can make people love their fellow man more but then the trade-off for that is they're going to have to have aggression towards an outside group and you can try to gratify your instinctual urges that are condemned by society but then society will punish you and you will punish yourself through guilt and, you know, so that's, that's also a, like a dead, a dead end to happiness. Yeah. And he does have this very interesting, um, you, you alluded to this before, but so the, the love, so we are a deep source of pleasure is sexual love, right? Sort of sexual, um, 
activity, getting our pleasure that way. So we form these human relationships where we're like, okay, like you have sex with me and we'll, and then we get in this deep, you know, he's very pessimistic about, about <laughs> the misery that re- human relationships especially get, will give you. And then he says that one way that people get around this is to say, well, I'll just love everyone. And that move, which many people have thought of a, a brilliant move of society by saying like, love your neighbor as yourself, or like a, some sort of golden rule, some sort of impartiality principle. He thinks that that's just a, a patchwork attempt at taking that sexual desire and saying, maybe I can just satisfy this by saying everybody love everybody and like removing it from the carnal pleasure. But he thinks, he thinks that this just won't work. And there is where I think he gets normative. Like he says, if you love everybody, then the people you actually love, like in your family, they're now just in the same boat as everybody else. Yeah. He's like, isn't that kind of a dick move that like you should all of a sudden drop everything for some stranger when like you have. (laughs) You have actually people who depend on you and who love you and those people you're loving uh, have right. nothing but regression and <laughs> hatred for you. And yet you're still loving them as much as the people um, around you who who need your love. Right. I was sympathetic to that. <laughs> I was kind of sympathetic to that. And at first I was like, well, but he doesn't, he doesn't get what people mean when they say you should love all humans. But his point is well taken. Well, it's like, well, it means nothing. It, it means very close to not at all what we mean when we say love your (laughs) love your loved ones so like what's the point (laughs) no it reminded me of like the williams critique of utilitarianism or you know like then if you just love everybody then you're not even like a person anymore i mean what if you guys started loving all gentiles like it would just be complete like waste (laughs) (laughs) um we can't do that well they don't love us that's for sure i i do I love them all. Yeah, I think there is a, this this deep strand of of much like Nietzsche. The one thing that I I got on board with was that at least his society had gone to great lengths to specifically find the sources of pleasure and tell people they can't do it. Like that that belief that there is a part of human nature that needs to be able to roam freely in a field, like let, let this happen. Stop trying so hard to suppress the very things almost because they're the things that bring us pleasure. Like stop giving us guilt for this. And he, he, he thinks that that guilt, both at the individual level and at the cultural level is just a cancer that's eating away at, at us. And that's at the heart of our, our discontent because we, we turn it into hate for ourselves. That's almost identical to what Nietzsche said, right? Yeah. Although I think Nietzsche has a more optimistic takeaway, which is you can make it sublime. Like once you recognize this and you recognize the fake boundaries of religion and morality and, uh, rationalism and all of that, like that, that there's, that there's a way to live and, and solve this at the level of the individual, not at the level of society. And I don't know if Freud believes that. 
Like even the lip service he pays to the artist is barely is lip service, right? He's like, maybe, but like, if that's true, it's a very small number of people. And I don't even know if it's true. That was the sense I got from it. Um, he's more just like into the tragic tension of it all. I actually think that um, that quote where Freud says, turn hysterical neurosis into common unhappiness. I think that's his lofty goal. Like maybe let's just, let's just be normally thwarted in life. Let's have just the normal level of frustration, not any of this extra, extra guilt at the, even having the thought of doing something wrong. And the way I understand guilt, a lot of this guilt is unconscious and is manifesting itself in ways that we don't recognize as guilt in, in some like physical illness, like physical yeah, malady. Right. He thinks that, that's right. He thinks neuroses are the body's way of harming itself, punishing itself. Right. And so I take it what psychoanalyst is doing is just revealing that. And, and that's exactly what you're saying. Then that turns, what is, what is it to common unhappiness? Yeah, uh, hysterical neuroses. Hysterical neuroses. So like it's that you didn't know that you wanted to have sex with your mother and kill your father or you didn't know that whatever the thing is that it's, it's haunting you, it's just manifesting itself in some other physiological way. And then you're if you can realize that this is the optimistic at a certain level. But again, it's a very limited optimism. Then you then then you'll just go back to people who are just can't gratify their desires. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So to give you, I, I like to give people examples of the kinds of people that Freud saw, because I think maybe more so than now, it really was the case that these, these kinds of neuroses were turning into bodily symptoms. And, but certainly is the case that, you know, we have bodily symptoms for all kinds of shit now too. But um, the first you know, the sort of breakthrough case for Freud was this woman named Anna O oh, who came uh, to see him and she was having a particular kind of paralysis that they called glove paralysis. Basically, she couldn't feel anything from her wrist up. And Freud as an MD knew that there was no uh, physiological way that that could happen because the nerves don't work that way. Like the, you wouldn't lose feeling only above your hand. Um, and the way that he started treating her was just talking to her about dreams and stuff. As he talked about her symptoms, sometimes the symptoms would disappear. And so, especially when they were talking about, about things, you know, these deep seated desires and, and her interpreting her dreams. Um, this was the talking cure that, that kind of made these things go away. And I think that's, would be the most optimistic he could get about, I think he's trying to do something like psychoanalyze society, but even he admits that it's not clear what that even means, right? And he says, you know, he says one of the differences between treating a person and, you know, diagnosing civilization is that when you, one of the ways in which we define a mental illness is that they're having trouble adjusting to their environment, right? So there's something wrong with you that's preventing you from, leading a quote-unquote normal life in your environment. And what does it mean to say that all of society is neurotic with no, there is no comparison group there? Like what is, what is the normal control sort of society that wouldn't be neurotic? I just want to read you really quickly this. <laughs> this is not from the text, but this is a correspondence that Freud had with Jung, just to get back to the, the anal. Uh, so this is, this is a description of a patient 
It says, first trauma between third and fourth year. Saw her father spanking her older brother on the bare bottom. Powerful impression. Couldn't help thinking afterwards that she had defecated on her father's hand. From the fourth to seventh year, convulsive attempts to defecate on her own feet in the following manner. She sat on the floor with one foot beneath her, pressed her heel against her anus, and tried to defecate, and at the same time, to prevent defecation. Often retained the stool for two weeks in this way. Has no idea how she hit upon this peculiar business, says it was completely instinctive and accompanied by blissfully shuddersome feelings. Later, this phenomenon was superseded by vigorous masturbation. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. <laughs> this is, <laughs> so like, well, no wonder he's developing theories about <laughs> butt stuff. <laughs> uh, sometimes I wonder, like, did this shit just go away with the disappearance of such repressive sexual, especially for women? Or... Are there just people that we just don't hear about? Yeah, no, I I wonder that too. Like, because I think, you know, at the time he talks about, we have all these, you know, we want to fuck men, women, sisters, brothers. We want to do everything. And all we're allowed to do is like heterosexual love. Now that's no longer true, right? Right, right. But that didn't solve people's hangups, right? Like it definitely made people happier. It made certain people more free to be able to, but it didn't like cure society's ills. Um, and in fact, the people who were just inclined to heterosexual love didn't just start having sex. It's not like once, <laughs> yeah. you know, same sex relations <laughs> were normalized. It's like all of a sudden we're all having sex. We're all fucking like, uh, men and our sisters. So, yeah. so like, uh, it's obviously true of that, an overly repressive will just lead to unnecessary unhappiness and maybe pathology, maybe shitting out like on your foot. I don't know, but we can't just have a more tolerant society. That's not going to, that's not going to do it, you know, because. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm trying to, you know, maybe he would say, well, the permissiveness, um, uh, now has swung the other way and our problems are due to that. It really is hard to detach his critique of society, uh, sort of, sorry, his diagnosis of how civilization works from the critique of the society that he was part of. I just don't know that that can be done. You know, he, he seems to think he has a wide sweeping understanding of, of history, but he admits that he doesn't really like, it's not, this isn't the sort of thing. <laughs> So what do you think, where do you stand on Freud as, and as a psychologist? I'll say that. Yeah, I, I, because when I teach intro psych, I have to make a decision as whether or not to teach Freud. And I really try to teach the course as a course on the science of psychology. And so I have very little by way of like, you know, ancestor worship. I teach Freud anyway, because the ideas of Freud are so ingrained in our culture that I want them to know about it. And I also think that it's a good example of a theory that doesn't have empirical evidence. In fact, it often was completely unfalsifiable. So I like to shit on it for not being scientific for the sake of my kids to teach them what a scientific theory is and isn't. But I always try to tell them that, you know, something that we've talked about a lot, which is 
if you think that the only source of insight and truth is empirical science, then I think that's where you're mistaken. And if you read Freud, there's a lot of what he says that I find insightful. Like, I actually think that a lot of what he says is like actual food for thought. And the best way I could put it is it at least gives me some sense that if I contemplate some of the points he's making, I feel like I might be more wise by understanding this, this basic tension. Like, I think that some of the stuff he says here is just basically true about the trade-off and the frustration of being the human condition, right? The, the, the human condition is not just us as individuals in this world, uh, just roaming around as individuals, but also the very structure of what it means to live with other people. As I think that that's true, you know, I, and I also find him fun to read. So I, I actually incur, I like to encourage people if, especially this book, I, I say like, just give it a read. Like there's some interesting stuff in there. Like, I don't think short. Yeah. And it's short. I do think though, I, I was thinking about this very thing that you were asking er, earlier before we recorded. And, and I thought, well, so what am I saying? Am I saying that this isn't psychology? And I don't think I want to say that. I think I want to say, yeah, like uh, the, the psychology that I do is, is presumably purportedly or ostensibly scientific but that's not all of psychology. A lot of psychology is therapy. And a lot of therapy is applying some real basic wisdom from experience or from other people's experience. And I think we can get something valuable from Freud. So I think we often would say that Freud is unfalsifiable pseudoscience, whereas clinical psychology might be a real science. But if you look at, say, you know, pharmacologists, and the way certain disorders are treated now, it's not totally clear to me why that, why that is, is, is more of a science or at least giving us better psychological theories. Both psychotherapy and, you know, and, and pharmacology treat disorders and they have a track record that you can test. And there's just different ways of going about it. Neither have produced a theory of the human mind that is, you know, that, that is testable and they're not even close, right? Like in, in either case. So I'm wondering if there's a way in which I haven't reflected on this enough, but there's a way in which like psychology has to be unfalsifiable at the levels that Freud is talking about, because there's just no way to test these broad general claims about the human mind and human development. And as soon as you go into the, 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 the things that you can test now, the, you know, there's no way to extrapolate those, those things that you can, um, that you can study into a broader right. understanding. Yeah. So you're saying two, two things. One, you know, Freud was a big theorist of the sort that we just don't have that much anymore. Right. There's people don't, you know, his was a theory of development of personality and of mental illness all wrapped into one. And, you know, in this case, uh, uh, analysis of, of how civilization works. We, there are definitely things that are entirely unfalsifiable in the sense that, um, I don't know whether what you did was because of an unconscious desire to fuck your mother that was stifled at age three. There's no way that I can ever know that. 
there is like I was getting ready to disagree more vehemently with you, but I think, yeah, if, if, if what you are looking for are theories, these, these integrative theories that are falsifiable, that's increasingly, I think, harder and harder to, to accept that, that we have any of those. What you do have is say clinical trials where you say, um, does this pill reduce depression in a double blind, whatever placebo control? And you see whether it does. And you can do that for like cognitive behavioral therapy. And we know, for instance, that like cognitive behavioral therapy is really good at things like simple phobias. You know, it's not very good at general malaise. Like, so we can test those things out, but those aren't, those aren't theories in the sense. It's psychology, but it's not a psychological theory in the sense. But in that sense, you could do that with psychotherapy and psychoanalysis too, right? Like you could do, you could do trials on how effective it is and to what extent. Uh, and they do, patient. right? And they do, and and so um, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, but one of the problems is that psychoanalysis really does say, like, no, you need five years of this stuff before you're gonna you can. But you know, I think plenty of psychoanalysis actually helps people, um, and whether or not we have the right tools to measure that, it turns out that it's super difficult to figure out how to test therapies against therapies because oftentimes just talking to people is enough to have right. an effect. Is that placebo or is that active ingredient? Like it's hard to know, right? The fact that somebody is sitting there and talking to you two days out of the week for five years, you know, maybe that just turns on whether your therapist is good or not. <laughs> but so that's interesting because if you, then say, well, it's not falsifiable in the way that clinical trials are because, you know, they say it takes five years and you can't get, well, that's, that just means you're reducing the scope of what you're willing to consider as treatment, right? Just yeah. so that you can do it into bite-sized things that you can, that you can then test. But what if, but that, but then you're excluding the possibility that what if they're right? That, that, you know, that this is something that needs five years of, uh, of, of work with somebody like you wouldn't even, that wouldn't even be a possibility. That wouldn't even be something that you could ever achieve if you were insisting on these bite-sized treatments so that you could clinically test them. And I'm not saying there's a good solution for this, but it's not obvious to me that it, it has, it has to be wrong because it has this long, no. longer so, treatment length. I. I don't mean to say what I think it sounded like I said, which is there have been plenty of people who have looked at years worth of therapy, including psychoanalytic treatment, and they compare those two things. What I was more pointing to is that psychoanalysis has this ability to flexibly sort of avoid criticism in a way that other ones don't. Like if your CBT therapy says that it, it should work in this way and it doesn't, I, and I think CBT therapists are be like, oh, what went wrong? It didn't work. Whereas the psychoanalysis is a little more fuzzy in that way. So people have, it's, it, but yeah. But the other point is still true though, that it's hard to know what a control condition for therapy is. Right. I, I was going to say that I wonder if some of Freud's disrepute is also Freudians and the defensiveness that they feel and how they act. I was, I, I listened just briefly to a podcast with a Freudian and then a couple of critics of Freud and the Freudian was really just jumping all over anybody who would attack 
you know, the least part of it. And, you know, that like there's clearly like personalities here (laughs) that are sick of being the butt of everybody's jokes. (laughs) And um, so here's another question. I I know we have to wrap up, but if you didn't know anything about Freud and you picked up this book, would you think it's a work of philosophy or psychology? And I know there's a because he doesn't talk too much about him treating other people. Uh, in fact, I don't like, I don't know if he talks about his treatments of patients at all in this text. No. He talks about other people's treatments. I alludes to it, but like, could this be a work of philosophy? And it would be more in the vein of ancient, ancient philosophy or maybe as late as Hume and, you know, his treatise on human nature, but it seems like the boundaries here between philosophy and psychology are pretty fuzzy because he's doing this big idea kind of work. Yeah, and, and like sociology kind of. Yeah. And sociology you know? for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. My, my initial answer is if I had never heard of Freud and I read this, I would be very confused because I would be like, what the fuck is he talking about with this anal shit? You know? Yeah. Um, But I was wondering the same thing. I think that, one of the things that I have become far more accustomed to is the amount of psychology that's in philosophy. So even later than Hume, you know, I think you go even go to Nietzsche, there's a lot of him talking about the human condition and about the human psyche. And I think that it's in that vein. So I, I hesitate to say, no, this is just philosophy, because what I mean is it's the it feels to me like the kind of analysis that uh, mixes you know, the traditional philosophical methods with just a a real introspection or observation of the human condition. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. So when I said as late as Hume, that was wrong. Like I think the 19th century philosophers. Yeah. Even like all these guys that I never read. Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, Kierkegaard, like it's, they're, they're all, they're psychologists, they're psychologists in a similar way, or at least there's a lot of psychology, as you said. I guess what I was thinking is at the time that Freud is writing, philosophy has now taken this turn, at least analytic philosophy, yeah, as this just purely the deontological consequentialist debate and more uh, versus Sidgwick. Yeah, that's super like, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so like this is this is the kind of thing that like picks up where Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and those guys left off. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that that the beginning of the end was around the corner for this kind of thinking. and. You know, like I'm, uh, this is a case where I'm glad that at least the, you know, so-called scientific psychology from Wundt in Germany made its way. And we had like, even just like perceptual psychology and, and that kind of stuff that, that it made its way. And it, it, it arose as an independent thing from Freud, but I've softened up about Freud. I used to be a fan in college because that's what you like in college. And then I was like really hardcore, like, you know, this is bullshit. How do we even tolerate his ideas now? Like, why don't we just tear him out of the textbooks? Because none of what he said. Now I'm just like, well, look, if, if what, if he was claiming that he had, you know, irrefutable evidence of some empirical point, which he borders on that arrogance sometimes, 
Um, but he's not, he's not, um, yeah. he's not cargo he's, culting it, right? He's, right? he's not pretending that he's in a lab with a, with a lab coat on with test tubes. Not at all. Right. Yeah. And there is something to me where it's like, if you think that poets or other artists are capable of expressing something true about the human condition, then it would be extremely arrogant of me to say that when it takes this kind of in-between form, that it's automatically incapable. Like this is, to me, this is a text of ideas that if it took the form of say a novel, like a Dostoevsky novel, it might give me the same insights. So I put it in a category of enjoyable potential for insights. It's not what I do in the sense that the, we share the same word psychology. It's not, you know, I would never do anything, but I like it. I I'm, I'm softened to it. What do you think? I totally agree. Like, I think it is in, in the vein, like it's a valuable type of contribution, uh, to understanding human beings and society. And in the same way that Nietzsche is in the same way that good philosophers are good sociologists. And I, it would be a shame if, Nobody wrote in this vein. I mean, I think because he gets very detailed about certain things. I just want to point people to get this book and look at the footnote on the chapter three. I think it's the first footnote. It's just brilliant. But that's that's at least he saved those weird details for his footnotes in this. Yeah, what is that? Um, um, hold on, I will. It's psychoanalytic material, while incomplete and impossible to interpret with any certainty, at least allows a surmise, a fantastic sounding one, about the origin of this great human achievement. It is as though primitive man was in the habit when confronted with fire of using it to satisfy an infantile desire by urinating on it and so putting it out. Extant legends leave us in no doubt about the original phallic interpretation of the tongues of flame stretching upwards. Extinguishing a fire by urinating on it blah, blah, blah. It was therefore like a sexual act performed with a man, an enjoyment of male potency in homosexual rivalry. Whoever first renounced this pleasure and spared the fire was able to take it away with him and make it serve his purposes. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's, it goes on. It, it's, it's great. <laughs> That's where, you know, if you're going to be a Freud critic... <laughs> <laughs> you you can have a field day with some of that stuff. But then other th the stuff, it's like, yeah, that seems right. And it's actually kind of insightful, or at least it seems plausible. And yeah, I'm a fan of this. And I'm glad, like, this is a text I think people should teach, you know, while being with all the caveats, with all the necessary caveats. You know? Right. One thing he doesn't give get enough credit for, um, I believe, is that, and you can tell in reading this book, he really wanted a theory that was consistent with what we knew about human evolution, like Darwinian natural selection. And he went to, I think, great lengths to make a theory that was, that was consistent with that. We, you know, we treat it now like the you know, positivists made us think that none of this could ever be, you know, like consistent with science. But, but I think he was trying. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he was trying to be naturalistic for sure. Even even some of the weirder ideas have a kind of naturalistic uh, origin. And yeah, he talks about Darwin. The incest thing is weird because we shouldn't have this drive to 
fuck our family members if you buy, you know, even I think theories of evolution that were around at the time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more of an evolutionary puzzle than a, like an inevitability. <laughs> right. Uh, I had a, so I'll end with this. I had a sociology professor once who like we were talking about, uh, incest and somebody expressed kind of what you did, which was like, that's just weird. And he looked at us, it was like a small seminar and he goes, incest is a temptation in any family. And we are all, what the fuck? You have two sons, man. Get him, get out of here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but brothers and sisters in a family, like the love between brothers and sisters in a family is also called love. Although to us, this relation merits the description of aim inhibited love or affection. Love with an inhibited aim was indeed originally full sensual love and in men's unconscious minds is so still. She draws a lot of attention to the unconscious in a way that I think is good. It's just the details of what he says are in, but I, like it, it's definitely true that we have these drives and urges that we're not fully conscious of, or even maybe at all conscious of. It seems like they reflect more his personal hangups at times than like some sort of universal law. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is you can never, and this happened a lot, right? People are like, Hi, what are you talking about? This is unconscious. He's like, well, of course, well, like you can't measure it. It's unconscious, right? Like, of course. Of course you <laughs> well, don't know about it. Of course you're rebelling <laughs> against it. That's exactly yeah, that's what an unconscious desire to fuck your sister would make you say. <laughs> <laughs> like a simulation, yeah. I thought. All right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.